and welcome to the Yuri Was a Front Page Podcast. This week, we speak to Razahayas Rasmantor, who discuss the MCK's portfolio allocations, the recently announced Hertel Hydro Project, and the challenges of governance during a pandemic. Prior to the election, uh, there was a lot of discussion about accountability and, and, and being uh, accessible to the community. And uh, so one of the things that we're doing now is uh, we're having MCK Radzahayas uh, in for a monthly show. Uh, and, and you're the first one to join us. And you guys just finished allocating the portfolios. And uh, how did that, like, is, has it been a different process this year than, than, than last year, than last term? Or uh, and how did it all go about? Well, okay, to quickly get into that, Greg, the, um, it, it basically is the same process we went, into, uh, we went through the last uh, term, which was new then. Uh, the whole selection process for portfolios was a new, number one, the portfolios were a new model uh, that came out of um, all the work that had been done with uh, strategic organizational planning, uh, the development rather, it's that sod, and it, and, it, and it laid out how you could have teams, you know, subject matter experts attached to your portfolio team, uh, who the players were in the team, the protocols and, and uh, that you, you would follow in terms of what your authorities were, what you bring to the table. And uh, in there too, I mean, there was a, a lot of discussion, especially this, this term, if anything, maybe more so than even my first term, uh, in terms of, okay, because of a lot of things, whether it was, you know, um, the blockade, whether it was um, the, the pandemic and so on, we did talk about the need to have ways of, of, of approaching and engaging with the community and improving on that more so than, than before. I mean, everything is, is, is framed around trying to improve what we do as a council. Uh, this term, uh, again, we, talk, we talked about ways of doing that. One of the things that happened, of course, is there was a lot of, or, or you know, the engagement in terms of the, even if you looked at the, the campaign process, it occurred rather informally outside because the digital version, uh, a lot of people found, uh, you know, problematic, including uh, us who were, who were running. It was a very kind of disconcerting way of uh, speaking to the community. So that's a key factor. So one of the things, again, is if you, people refer to it as transparency, uh, I would say also engagement. How do we engage? I mean, one of the things we're struggling with, and this is because the the pandemic keep, keep, keeps going back and forth. You know, we're in recovery, but there's now the whole issue of, you know, of uh, uh, passports and other kinds of things because we wanted to be back into, at the beginning of the month, having face-to-face -face community meetings. How do you do that? Can you do it outside? How many people can come? All those things be, are very, dis, they're difficult logistically. So um, that, that was, that's been part of the process. And it, and it remains one of the goals in terms of um, the work moving forward into the, into the next term is, is engagement and transparency with the community. Just a couple of weeks ago, the the portfolio allocations were announced, and uh, so what 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 are the portfolios that you're on this this term? Okay, so this this term, I I wanted to take a little bit more of a focused approach. Uh, the first time, it was kind of like uh, looking at the uh, the menu in an Asian restaurant. You know, two from column B, two from I mean, it was like a kid in a candy store because I I have diverse interests. So I mean, it was in a lot of places. Uh, that were of particular interest to me, like justice, like uh, legislation, 
Um, and, and I held those portfolios with Tanya Perron, who was the lead in both of those, given her background uh, as a lawyer in that. This term, I decided in, those, in, in the case of those to let those go, okay? because the work that I got involved with Greg over the last half of the term ended up being what I really wanted to be on council for in terms of dealing with external governments and so on. So I had become very much involved in, in trying to improve the legislation for Bill C-15, the UNDRIP bill, and also uh, Bill 218. And I also became, on, prior to that, involved with um, the gaming file in terms of uh, Mohawk Online. So this year I have Indigenous Rights and Research. I, I, I felt a commitment to continue on with that. The, one of the things that got derailed by everything was the creation of a research unit, which would cover duty to consult, archaeology, and, and a whole suite of, re, uh, of research uh, work which is all based on, you know, establishing, not fighting it out in courts, but establishing, you know, you know, you live in Quebec, and they happen to think they were here before our people were, that that sort of thing. So I, I, I retained the lead on that, on that file, and I'm, I'm sharing it with uh, three of the new chiefs, actually, Jessica uh, Lazar, who I, is I, an awfully, I think, good replacement for Tanya, who stepped away from Indigenous Rights and Research, uh, also on there is uh, Bart Goodleaf, uh, and also AJ uh, Rice, and both of those both of those are, are are really excellent, I think, because they they have already a background organizationally, and they're also very task oriented people, and I think they're going to be key in terms of the development of the the research unit. So that's a goal of that one. I'm also involved in external government portfolios, so I'm, I'm now the lead for uh, KCR. Whereas Mike is uh, Mike DeLille has taken on the lead for QKR, but I remain involved in both of those things. In in and this is under Indigenous Rights and Research. Okay, that's all under that umbrella. Also, uh, Mike and I have been working closely over the last year on the uh, the scenery file. So that's those are extremely important to me. Also, I have been in, involved uh, with the FNQL at that level through the last year. So I have Indigenous Rights and Research. Because of the alignment, uh, I, I am now the lead for environment because, uh, as people may not know, uh, when you come to duty to consult, we have relied heavily on the, uh, the scientific staff of the environment unit. And that's something that I spoke, I spoke with Lynn Jacobs about uh, the need to say, we're going to work together. She's going to help assist to in the development of the unit because drawing on them so heavily and we cannot do that work without that kind of expertise but it takes away from work that they could be doing uh, within the within the territory in, in terms of environment so i'm involved in that i'm still involved with education and i think the the well i don't think it the one of the main concerns that i that i hold for that number one i'm i'm, I'm committed to the um the delivery of of the best educational outcomes for for all of our, our children and all of our students uh, all from k to 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 university but also there's a particular interest that both uh, chief harry rice who was the lead on that to Garibunuro, and seeing that uh, we, we we worked together last term and got them secure funding and this in this term uh, we're refocusing on on getting them an interim home because things aren't very they're the best relations where they are right now and besides, the building needs needs work. So similar to KOR, but maybe not as bad as, as where KOR was. 
we, we need to find an interim solution and then work towards uh, a, uh, a complete um, a solution. Before the election, uh, I had been speaking to uh, Mark Miller, the uh, Minister of uh, Indigenous Services Canada, because he had also had a commitment to Garibunuro in the past. And I was asked to reach out to him. We had a lengthy conversation. Of course, everything was contingent on the outcome of the federal election. So we will be revisiting that in terms of, uh, because I, he made a commitment to be engaged with us at, the, at uh, the council level in terms of looking at what are the options, what are the possibilities for, for capital investment on that. So I'm, I'm remaining on education. So I have Indigenous Rights and Research, uh, Environment, I'm on the lands portfolio also. I'm not the lead, Cody Dimebo uh, is the lead for that. But again, it's, I'm co- trying to correlate the focus because lands is part of everything else. It has to do with our exit from the Indian Act on our terms. And, and land is a big part of that. And I think that about covers where I'm at. This past July with the election, there was, uh, you know, I, I think a very big change at the table. There's a couple of councillors who ran for Grand Chief and who are no longer on council. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of new councillors. Uh, how has the dynamic at the table been since then? And, and, with, and how different is it with, uh, you know, with some of those, uh, those veteran faces not being around? There's two ways to look at that. Uh, one way is it is a rather dramatic change. But if you look at the last term, I mean, if there were five, there were three former councillors that got back onto council. You had Lindsay, you had Lloyd, uh, and you had Mike. And there were three open spots. So when I ran, I looked at that and I said, okay, what's the appetite for change? It turns out there was an appetite for three new faces at the table. So that's where Tanya came on, myself, and Harry Rice. And so that was really, I mean, that was significant because the community, I can't recall any election where that many new faces uh, came to the table. Now, this election, in my view, is, is, um, is part of that sea change. It's, it's, you know, if you think about it, Greg, I mean, you're, you're a fair bit younger than me still, <laughs> and you will remain so. The, this is, but we're in a generational shift right now. So there was a lot of emphasis in terms of uh, having new people on, but also a young, I I like the term necessarily youth, but younger, you know, fresher faces to to the portfolio. And I think, you know, I mean, mean, Bart's younger than me too, but I mean, uh, you know, he's not exactly a youth either, but, you know, he brought that sort of business background to it and and fresh perspectives. And so on, and I, and I and I think that see all of that stuff is healthy. The fact that we lost some, we lost two people in the case of Gina, who had served for I think it was nine years, maybe longer. And then you had uh, Frank uh, McCumber, uh, who was on for not even the whole of the one term. That's a consequence of of of, of running as an incumbent, and you know the 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 election law is up for revision. Brian Goodleaf introduced uh, a, a call for amendment, so it'll now be in the queue. But I think this opens up the opportunity at looking at some other things. A thing I wanted to touch on, too, over the last uh, year and change of the, the, the last term, with the passing of uh, De Guido, this, this created quite a shift in how we were trying to function to, be, to get through because the election law did not, didn't differentiate between grand chief or just a, a regular council chief in terms of uh, what do you do 
if a person is no longer there for whatever the reason, because you have that 18-month cutoff period, halfway through the term, you cannot have a by-election. And it would be good to have a, another look at that. What do you do in the case of a grand chief? If they should, uh, for as I say, said before, for whatever reason, they leave the office. And, and I think that'll be important too. But that, because that's, because that impact, because it would have been good to say, well, people had a choice to say, still have somebody remain on council. You might not choose them for a uh, grand chief, but you might still want them to be there. But how, how you do that will be a subject for the community to make decisions on. Before we start recording, uh, you were saying that you were supposed to be in your city this week. Yeah. When I spoke to Abigail, uh, in, in terms of scheduling this, I thought, okay, so what, what, what could we talk about? We were scheduled at being uh, Gasanahawe uh, and myself uh, representing the council uh, to go to to New York City for, it's called Climate Week. And um, the main purpose, though, was, was to go um, in favor of a bid that was being proposed by Hydro-Quebec. And and we are we have partnered on you know uh, with Hydro Quebec in terms of business relationship, a very specific kind of a business relationship. It's, it, it's not about the actual energy flowing through the line; it's about the infrastructure. So we were going there uh, along with representatives from uh, Hydro Quebec in order to promote the bid. Uh, as it turned out, because there were some cancellations from the mayor's office because that was one of the places we were going to to speak. And then the president of uh, um, Hydro-Quebec decided on that basis while withdrawing. There was all kinds of, uh, I think, uh, concern that it was sort of going to move against the, the bid. Whatever the case may be, it turned out it didn't make any sense to go. Almost virtually the day after, though, we got the announcement that uh, the Hydro-Quebec bid have been accepted. Okay. So we're now we're on to the next thing. I think there's probably been a, maybe a, a, something put out in the media that, that spoke to the larger numbers in terms of the, the long-term financial outlook in terms of the deal for Hydro-Quebec, which, which has to do with the energy. It doesn't have to do with the infrastructure. And that's the, that's the level we're involved in. We're we're not yet at the point of being able to speak to specific numbers yet, and that's simply because we have negotiated thus far, uh, that being myself and and uh, Mike Delille, it's sort of a, a, a basic sort of uh, understanding or or agreement. an MOU, an MOU to what the agreement would look like, what the potential amounts would be, and so now it comes down to actually pinning the numbers down. I'll tell you that we, we did have a meeting on um, Tuesday with the president of Hydro-Quebec and uh, two of the key personnel that we had been uh, doing the negotiation with, uh, and this uh, in, in Gatanawagi, and, uh, and it was a very good meeting. So we're looking at the, the potential. It's, I, I, can, I can say this to the community, wait for the numbers. They're significant numbers. But what is really, truly significant about this, and this is some people might say, well, how come it's only that much or, you know, this much? It shouldn't it be more. And the people are thinking about the actual energy coming through. And that's not what it's uh, what it's about. But this is the important thing to me, Greg, is that it's a it's at least a tacit recognition on the part of the government of Quebec that they are coming through our territory. OK, otherwise they would not be sitting at the table with us. 
Uh, and Hydro-Quebec, the, the president of Hydro-Quebec, who really said, you know, she told us that she went to school. She didn't know, she didn't learn anything about us. You know, I, I mean, I toyed with the idea of saying to her, you know, I, I'm the same here when I started school, except that we ate your babies. But I didn't. <laughs> the things, the things I don't say, you know, I used to be a cartoonist. So. Yeah. <laughs> the, but, the, but the thing is, is that there's, there's an openness on that level to look at relationships. Okay. And the development of other relationships in, in terms of uh, business with us. She was questioned by the French media, the Quebec media, as to why are you going through this with the Mohawks? And she said at that interview, and this is uh, maybe three, four weeks ago, she said, because we're going through their home. We're in their house. And I think that's a key takeaway in terms of, I mean, if you look at the history of the scenery uh, negotiations, Quebec has always been a reluctant partner. I think that's an important point is that uh, if a Quebec crown corporation, which is owned by the, the, by the provincial government, is saying these types of things, it's very important. Because in the past, Quebec's legal argument for not being at the negotiation table for the senior Sault Ste. Louis land grievance is that, well, we, we were here before the Mohawks. So, so this is a, a, a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, I mean, you 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 could say, well, it's not all the way there yet, and it isn't. I mean, he was still deal with the reality. Look, on a political level, this is that's my interest, right? At the AFNQL, uh, AFNQL level, uh, but even internally, uh, we're living in a province, and this is why Bill C fifteen was so important. You know, to try and get an improvement on that, to actually have it have some real, in my view, our view, collectively, it wasn't just me, to say that this really has significance, has real meaning in law, okay? We're living in a jurisdiction, a, a province which calls itself a nation, which calls its premier, maybe that's because it's French, the prime minister, okay? And the nuance is not lost on anybody, okay? But they do not even acknowledge that we have a right, and an inherent right to self-determination, okay? So that still is there. The, um, or, or even that they feel that they have a right to have jurisdiction over all lands within Quebec. There are still battles to, to be conducted. But if you're going to say, if you're going to, because the Hydro-Quebec does not stand alone, apart from the government of Quebec, that there is, there is a, an acknowledgement of our territory and, and I mean, this is the second time in recent history, in a recent history in the last 15, 20 years, that Quebec has made some kind of uh, acknowledgement of our territory uh, in regards to the scenery. The, the first time was when they were building the Highway 30 extension through the scenery. And, and they said, well, we're going to give back 700 or so acres. They still owe us like 211. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but, but that yeah. was, that was something that was at that point, uh, was unprecedented for the government to say, well, especially the government that's saying that they're not going to the negotiation table because they have nothing to no negotiate with us to say, okay, well, we're yeah. going to displace 700 or so acres out of their, their, their land claim. We're going to return that to them. So, so there's, there's an acceptance by the government that, that yes, the, the scenery is our territory. Yeah, and the thing is to pin them down on the right interpretation of of that action, uh, because they may try, and I and I suspect that they would try to frame it in other in other terms in other ways, and and especially this government, on on the one hand, given the change from the 
the former minister of SAA, from uh, Sylvie Demore to Jan Lafreniere, uh, there's at least some dialogue. But even that is, it's it's just at the beginning, and it's and it's really you know like framing um, the discussion about what is a, is it nation to nation, or are we talking about agreement to agreement? And one should, if you're going, if you guys are going to call yourselves a nation, and you guys are going to purport to have all of that that jurisdictional authority that comes with that, then you got to respect ours. That's the deal. And that's one of the reasons that I'm going to touch back on on the the environment issue. Uh, there's a need to, to have a creation of um, a, a stronger law. We had to fight uh, jurisdictionally about at MELC, the Environment uh, Ministry of Quebec, issuing an authorization on the territory with the, with the Line 3 dismiss, dismantlement. Okay? And we said, no, you can't do that. This is not your jurisdiction. This is Ganawagi's jurisdiction. And I got into a, a bit of an argument with the, the former, now retired uh, Quebec negotiator on that for, um, for SAA about who's got the bigger lawyers. You know, and, and so we, the only thing, Greg, that we had at that point and we have at this point is the sanitary conditions law. Okay? And my discussions with Lynn is that we, we need to put forth legislation which is, which is stronger, which has some, some teeth to it. How does that happen now, right? I mean, you know, there's a community decision-making process, which is a long process. And uh, so so how does this start? Well, how does it start is, a, number one, there needs to be, uh, and, and that's part of, the, regardless of uh, what new might come into the queue, there's already a list of um, proposed legislation in the hopper. Okay, So you mean you have regulatory stuff, and then you got, you know, you have the stuff that affects everybody. So that's another step, then, and, and, and Tanya will be more involved with bringing that to the table in terms of let's have, okay, now we have to have a discussion. Yeah, we, we want to talk about the, um, you know, a, a, an environment law, and that's been already broached at the table, uh, the need for it. And that was something that I was saying, you know, I mean, I mean even internally, Greg, we, if, you, if you look at some of the things that have happened, I sit at a table in terms of duty to consult. And I could bring to that table a worldview which is based on ahandagariyadekwa and a traditional way of making decisions. And sometimes at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, when are they going to turn around and say, well, what are you doing in your own community? And so as, as a Guahumi people, uh, we need to, I think, have a reflection on what does that mean internally? But back to the thing about the legislation and the process, we're going to have to be creative. We're going to have to find a way to do it. And and that's one of the challenges we're all facing. I mean, that's planetary right now. I mean, the, that's why it's called a pandemic on the way to becoming endemic. We're going to have to adjust. You know, I mean, the, the what people talk about going back to normal, this is normal now. This is the norm. Uh, how it moves, it, you know, adjusts from, from day to day. And how long this, this new normal is going to last until uh, we're no longer in a pandemic and or there's no longer a need for these types of measures because there's an adequate number of the community population and the population in general that's protected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you follow the news in the U.S. I mean, I watched a story this week uh, from, from the U.S. about the state of Mississippi and the rate of, of death from, from, the, from the, the pandemic, and particularly with uh, the Delta variant. Uh, that if they were an independent country, they would be second only to Peru. Now, what's the difference between Mississippi and Peru? 
The difference is in Peru, they don't have the money for it and they would love to have the vaccine. Uh, in North America, we seem to have the luxury to debate rights and so on, as opposed to responsibilities. And, we, and, and, and as long as that exists, we're going to say prolong uh, that, that process. You know, I made a decision to be vaccinated, as I'm sure you did, in the interest not just of your own, you know, but of that of your family, your parents, your, 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 your siblings, your, your nieces, nephews, and so on, and the community. Because it's a collective thing, right? We're all going through this together. And the only way we're going we're gonna to see the, the way at the end of the tunnel is if we're all on the same page, right? It's very difficult. We're, 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 we're very independent thinking people. And so, I mean, out of respect for those people who, are, who, who have made the decision to say, I will not be vaccinated, and I've based it on, 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 on some due consideration as well. The one thing I would say about all of that, Greg, and you understand this, I know, is that when we all decisions are consequential, and if you make a decision, you exercise your freedom, then you need to pre be prepared to say accept what comes with the, with that decision having been made. Yeah, because because with every decision that you make in in any in, in any walk of life, there there's a there's a door that that you go through with making that decision and the consequences and outcomes of that decision lie behind that door. And sometimes you know what they are, sometimes you don't. And so there's always a risk on what those consequences or maybe something with a, less of a negative connotation, because every action has, has, has a reaction. So, so there has to be, you know, whenever you make a decision, you have to make an informed decision because you need to know what the outcome of that decision is going to be. We're also living in an age, Greg, of, of misinformation. Uh, the, the, the easy transmission of information can be a great thing, can be a good thing. It's just like TV. When TV was invented, like it could be just a marvelous thing and instead of 57 channels with nothing on, as Bruce Springsteen once sang a long time ago, and now there's more. Yeah, now there's but 500 it, channels. Yeah, I mean, you had, I mean you, have, you had a presidency in the United States, which is just nuts. And, and you have, and to this day, you know, the, the, you know, crazy talk about, you know, elections and fraud and this and that, and I'm never going to be this and I'm never going to do that. And, and uh, I'm going to pass a, a legislation that says that kids can't go to school masked. You know, it, it, there's really kind of crazy thinking. And that comes largely, in my view, from misinformation. And again, I don't want to, again, denigrate anybody's, you know, how you arrive at decisions, and certainly not among my own people. But, you know, the, it, it's important. As you say, you know, you, when you make a decision, you open a door. In simple terms, Greg, and this is what I do with uh, uh, Duri Consult, there's the Ohanagari Dekwa, okay? That's the worldview part of it, which says that as humans, the first part, it says, because we're the ones who make the, we make decisions. Every other part of creation fulfills responsibilities. There's not a mention in there of rights, okay? And I'm not saying we don't have rights. We do have rights. But when I always say my biggest right is my responsibility, okay? The other part of making the decision, and this I remember, I got a few years ago from, a, uh, before I got on council from, a, from actually was a Seneca elder who was traveling out in western New York. 
And he talked about how are people made decisions. And the first thing, the consideration, when you make an important decision, a decision you have to take into account, the impact on the peace. And that's not just talking about, you know, like uh, war. Okay, that's relationships and so on. And, and it gets to the next part, which is you have to consider the impact on the environment, which includes us. That gets back to that Hondegarya Dekwa. Uh, and then you have to consider, finally, the face is yet to come. And that's, I, I think, an approach. When you start making decisions, and it fits in that whole sort of cognitive approach, put on the board, you know, here's a potential decision, what are its potential impacts? Uh, what is, what's good? What's maybe not going to be so good? Uh, how's it going to impact my family? All those considerations. And then base your decision on it. That's what you were just talking about. You know, out there in government, you talk about uh, FPIC. You know, I, I can only think how many times, you know, like the concerns were expressed at the Senate level or the parliamentary level in Canada, you know, about concerns about what we were asking for in Bill C-15. You know, it's like, are you talking about a veto on projects? Or did this FPIC thing is a big boogaboo for, for some people? Well, what is so frightening about free prior informed consent? Yeah, I mean, and that's the, that's the thing, right? Like, it, it's a concept that I think these governments don't understand that. Because because of the you know doctrine of discovery, uh, terra nullis, and and all these other you know manifest destiny, their entire existence is based on taking what they think is is theirs, and 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 without consequence uh, to the people whose whose traditional territories they're, they're they're dispossessing, right? Yeah, well, I mean that's the whole thing, man. If you want to talk about Section Thirty Five, the illusion of an inherent right uh, clause in the Canadian Constitution. I mean, the whole debate was whether it was a was a full basket or an empty basket, and I just could, kept hearing Frank Williams' song. Hank Williams' song, my bucket's got a hole in it, can't hold no beer. Okay, I mean that thing is because you have to go, and that's why we we, we fought so hard to have um, the Section Thirty Five viewed through the lens of the United Nations Declaration. They flipped it, Greg. Okay, so now Section Thirty Five is 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 actually being characterized by Section 35, the non-derogation clause in that. So what what's involved in that? I'm glad you brought up the thing about um, Terra Nullis, uh, doctrines of discovery, because that was another element. We wanted that specifically in law, not in the preamble, okay? But in the law, I wanted to, we wanted to have coercive strength in law. Because you go, if, you, if, we, if we want to say we have an inherent right to this or that, now we have to go and prove it. And that's what the premier of Quebec said in terms of, of self-determination. He'd only recognize it if we passed a Section 35 case proving that we had inherent, we had the inherent right to be self-determining. And that's the, the other flaw in the Canadian legal system is that for, for a Section 35 right to exist under, under their law, we have to prove that we had that right or, or, or did that activity at the time of contact, the Canadian government, the Quebec government, the provincial governments, they're not subject to the same standards. Well, this has always been my argument, yeah. Greg, because I, the way I understand it, actually what they say is prior to the assertion of European sovereignty. Okay, so there are periods of time when they're trying to get it, but they haven't got it. We could talk about the Great Peace of 1701, okay, when they still needed us as allies, okay. It's a little bit dumpy. What and they set out to burn our villages, and that was all about trying to assert, but not being able to fully assert that. So you, there's that sort of gray area, you know, where you can have. But who sets the table? Yeah, the government of Canada, through a, you know the constitutional mechanism and its and its and its legal system, 
says, okay, you have to prove that you, you've been doing this since before we, we told you we were the boss and have, the crown has authority over all the land and everything else. And then you have to pass these tests. You have to, you know, you have to use the Vanderpeet test. You have to look at Sparrow. Yep. They're determining how, it's like going in the, it's, a, it's the devil in Daniel Webster. I don't know if, I, if you know the old movie, guy sells his soul. He's not happy with the result. He engages this historic uh, character who's real, by the way, Daniel Webster, an incredible order. And he goes into hell at the expense, the potential expense of his own soul to argue on behalf of this hapless soul. Okay. The, the jury is Bluebeard, Blackbeard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All ne'er-do-wellers. Okay. And he succeeds. He convinces them. Okay, it's a great in a movie. Okay, doesn't exist in reality very often. Even when you succeed at that level, as the as the Mi'kmaq fishers are seeing in the, from the Marshall case, which I covered as a, you know a, yeah. a journalist, the the thing is okay. So you win, but we got to characterize it, and you got to be regulated. And, and no other Supreme Court decision prior to that has ever been qualified. After it's no, been made. But so that's the, I mean, that's the, the dishonesty with, with the whole process, right? That's the stuff that I chew and eat. And, uh, <laughs> so, um, I guess, uh, that, that just about wraps things up. Uh, if you have any final, final words, final thoughts. Yeah, I, I, I do have, uh, and that is basically as always, I, I look through this difficult time we're all going through and it's extremely different and it's polarizing. Okay, my 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 thought and my prayer for the community is that look, let's as you've said earlier in our discussion, get all on the same page, pull together, more than just sort of like get on the same page. As let's remember our connections, let's remember how we're related, let's remember how we're all family. Okay, we can search far enough, and and it, it doesn't take too long to find out how what our kinship is, and that's the root of our culture. Okay, let's come together. And I want everybody to remain safe, healthy, uh, and at peace. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now go, everyone, for listening. And be sure to be on the lookout for our other podcasts, including Your Diosa Profiles with Abigail Jacobs and Movement is Medicine with Mark Lone. This project has been made possible by the Community Media Strategic Support Fund, offered jointly by the Official Language Minority Community Media Consortium and the Government of Canada. and opinions of the guests expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of Udiwase and its employees.